and good morning everybody um, this morning's Bible reading is taken from Micah chapter 6 just three verses verses 6 to 8 Micah chapter 6 starting at verse 6 we pray the Lord may the Lord open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things in his law With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousand rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has shown you O mortal, what is good? And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Right. Good morning, church. Uh, do please keep that Bible passage open. Let me just start by saying that for the next two Sunday mornings, um, our brother White is going to be continuing our series in the Minor Prophets. And I must say I'm delighted that he's agreed to do it. He's something of an expert in this area of Scripture and uh, knows rather more about it than I do. And then the final talk in the series will be given by uh, Dr. Vuyani Sindhu, who's a senior lecturer at George Whitfield College. So that gives me a three-week break uh, to start thinking about the series for the third term in the book of Revelation. But um, I'm very grateful for these dear brothers for standing in the gap. Well, let's pray and let's ask the Lord to be with us as we look at his word together. Will you bow with me? Heavenly Father, it is our joy to worship you together and to bring you the adoration of our hearts and the consecration of our lives. We thank you that you are our Father, that you know us through and through, and that your word is able first to find us, then to speak to us, and then to transform us. And we pray that by your Holy Spirit, this passage will come alive to our hearts and minds this morning. And so we say, speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, according to Time magazine, one of the most popular novels of the last hundred years is The Lord of the Flies, by William Golding. Um, it's the story of a group of schoolboys who are stranded on an uninhabited island and left to govern themselves. And uh, without the restraining influence of parents or teachers, their capacity for cruelty is unleashed with horrific consequences. 
The book is making the point that in every human heart there is the potential for great wickedness and harm. It might be possible to keep it under control for a while, but under certain conditions it will explode, causing tremendous pain and suffering. Now, friends, we know this to be true, don't we? Uh, think of the internet with me for a moment. Uh, we are, of course, thankful for the internet. We couldn't have our online service this morning without it. But the internet is also a dangerous place. For one thing, it allows us to engage with the world anonymously. And I'm sure you know that the anonymity of the internet has created greenhouse conditions for cruelty because, of course, it makes it possible for people to say and do things they would never do if they knew other people were watching them. But, friends, the internet didn't create that cruelty in us. It simply unleashed what was in our hearts already. And that's why C.S. Lewis says that what we human beings need is not improvement, it's redemption. We don't need to become nicer people, we need to become new people. Now that's true today, and it was also true in Israel when Micah wrote the book we began to study together last Sunday morning. We saw that the people of God had long since stopped taking God seriously. And the result was that their religious practice was dull <coughs> and superficial. The culture was mired in corruption and greed and the oppression of the most vulnerable members of society. And when I put it like that, it sounds depressingly familiar, doesn't it? But the good news in Micah is that when Christian culture goes bad, God doesn't simply sit on the touchline hoping things will get better by themselves. Israel were far too far gone for that. No, God intervenes in our lives to help us repent so that we don't have to face his devastating judgment. Now, when God begins to do that, what kind of change is he looking for? Uh, what does a life that is pleasing to God actually look like? Well, Micah says we ought to know. Have a look at verse 8. He says, He has shown you, O man, what is good. So our task this morning is to discover or to rediscover how to live a good life. How to live a life that is pleasing to God. The passage begins with a question. It's actually the most important question anyone can ever ask. Then after that, there are three answers. The first two answers are wrong, but the third answer is right. And it points us to a correct understanding of what God means by good. So let's break the passage down under those three headings. Number one, the great question. Number two, the wrong answers. Number three, the right answer. So firstly then, the great question, verse six. Look at verse six. 
with what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Now, in Hebrew thought, to come before somebody meant to be in a relationship with them. And in Micah's day, most people in Israel would have said, well, look, I'm already in a relationship with the Lord. I'm a member of God's covenant community. I belong to one of the tribes of Jacob. So I'm in a relationship with God by birth. But you see, the way Micah asks the question implies that there's rather more to it than your family background and upbringing. Because in verse 6 he says, With what shall I bow down before the exalted God? So the real question is, how can I, how can you, have a relationship with the transcendent, exalted God? How can I know him? How can I stand in his presence? Now, friends, you and I need to think rather carefully about this. Because, you see, all ancient cultures understood that there is a huge gap between God and man. That's the reason that all ancient cultures had temples. Because unlike most people today, no one believed that you could simply stroll into the presence of Almighty God with your hands in your pockets. And that's because there's an unbridgeable gap between God and every human being. And uh, in ancient cultures, the only way that gap could be bridged was through the ministry of priests and sacrifice. And I start with this this morning because our generation has completely lost that sense of the gap between God and man. Uh, most people in South Africa believe in God, but the idea of God being exalted or transcendent or of a God to whom we owe everything and he owes us nothing, of a God who's infinitely holy and sovereign and has the right to do with us as he pleases, that idea of God is increasingly hard to find, is it not, in Christian culture. Because, you see, when people today say they believe in God, what they really mean is that they believe in a God of love, that they can talk to this God whenever they want to, and that God is basically there just to help them. But people in ancient cultures would have looked at modern people's understanding of God and said, you're crazy, and you're being logically inconsistent. So, you see, if you ask your neighbour after the service this morning, do you believe in a God who created the world? They'll probably say, yes. But at that point, we ought to reply, well, just look at that world. Look at the oceans and the mountains. Look at the stars and the infinite number of galaxies. If there's a God who created all that and who sustains all of it every second, is he really the kind of person you can just talk to? Does that God owe you anything? Is it his job to make sure that your life goes well? Well, of course not. So you see, Micah's question is just as relevant as people today as it was when he first wrote his book 2,700 years ago. How can I, just as I am, finite, flawed, 
limited, how is it possible for me to come into relationship with this great, infinite, exalted God? Well, that's the question. And Micah then proceeds to give us two wrong answers. And you'll find these in the second half of verse 6 and verse 7. Come with me to verse 6. Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams and 10,000 rivers of oil? Now that's a rhetorical question and obviously the answer is no. What he's basically saying is that all the wealth in the world wouldn't be enough to make you acceptable to God. Year-old calves were costly. God said in his law, Leviticus 22, that a calf would be an acceptable sacrifice once it was seven days old. Obviously, if you then feed and care for it for a whole year, that's expensive. And if you offer not just one calf, but a number of year-old calves as a burnt offering, well, you'd be kissing goodbye to a considerable investment. Thousands of rams would obviously be even more costly. And 10,000 rivers, actually literally the word torrents, 10,000 torrents of oil in today's economy would be quite literally billions of rand. That, that phrase, torrents of oil, is very striking, isn't it? And you, you see, he's saying, if I could bring you all the wealth in the world, would that suffice? as a burnt offering. Now it's important to understand that in the Old Testament sacrificial system, burnt offerings were not a way of atoning for sin. They were basically a way of giving your life to God. So Mike is saying, what if I gave you my life, all my wealth, everything I have? I'm going to live for you, I'm going to surrender everything to you, would that be enough to close the gap? Would that make it possible for me to have a relationship with the exalted God? And the answer is no, it would not. So that's the first wrong answer. But then Micah moves on and asks what sounds to us to be an utterly outrageous question. Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul. Now we're going to come back to this a bit later. But for now, please notice that here he's not talking about a burnt offering. He's talking about a sin offering. And under the Old Testament sacrificial system, when you sinned, you brought a sin offering in order to make atonement. Now, just think about this. If you've ever wronged somebody and you feel really guilty about it, what do you do? You go to them and you say, is there anything I can do to put this right? Is there anything I can do to atone for what I've done? And I guess if what you've done isn't too terrible, you actually might be able to do that. Uh, if you've cost them something but it's not priceless, it might actually pos be possible for you to make up for it. But friends, even at the human level, 
we know, don't we, that many of the things that we are capable of doing to other people, such as harming their reputation, for example, we know that there's actually no price you could pay to undo the damage. And here, Micah is saying, let me come up with something that would cause me more pain and suffering than anything else. How about the pain of losing my firstborn child? That would cause me unimaginable pain and anguish, says Micah. And the point is that even if I voluntarily submit myself to that kind of pain, it wouldn't even come close to atoning for my sin. Now why not? Why not? Because a sin against an infinite God is an infinite debt. God hasn't only created you, but he keeps you alive every second, which means that you owe him your life. But because we live as if we own ourselves, our sin is actually too great for us to be able to atone for it. So, there are the two wrong answers. If I surrender my life and start to live for God, would that close the gap? No, it wouldn't. And is there any kind of pain I can inflict on myself to atone for my sin against God? No. All the personal pain and agony in the world wouldn't atone for my sin. And when you put these two answers together, what Micah is saying is that there is absolutely nothing that we can do to bridge the gap between God and ourselves, the exalted God and sinful man. Now here's the thing. Most people don't believe that. Deep down inside, most people say, if I live a good life according to my own standards, and God sees that I'm trying my absolute hardest, well, I believe God will love me and answer my prayers. And Micah would reply, I'm sorry, but you simply don't understand how great God is, and you don't understand how flawed you are. So the question remains, how can I come before the exalted God? Well, verse 8 points us towards the right answer. Let me read verse 8 for us again. He has showed you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Now, that's one of the most famous verses in the Old Testament. It's inscribed on numerous public buildings. And many people who never go anywhere near a church and never read their Bibles have come across these words at some time or other. But the problem is that if they don't know the context of this verse in the Bible, what they understand those words to mean is that all I've basically got to do is try my best, live a good life, be merciful, pray occasionally, and walk humbly with your God. And you see, without a context, that verse means, well, I can decide which God I'm going to believe in. You have your God, I have my God. 
and all you need to do is walk humbly with your God, whoever you believe him to be. So if you take that verse out of its context and just stick it on a public building, that's what people are going to say. But let me ask you, have you ever had something you said taken out of context? Uh, I have, I'm sure you have, and you know how upsetting that can be. They, they pick up one phrase, one sentence in something you've said and without the context they make it sound like you meant something totally different. Well, in exactly the same way, friends, we need to look at the context first because the context tells us how to bridge the gap or how you and I can actually have a relationship with this exalted God. You see, the text of verse 8 is telling us how to conduct a relationship with the exalted God. But the question is, how does the relationship actually start? Well, we need to look at the context. We need to know what the rest of the Old Testament teaches on this. After all, that was Micah's world. He's an Old Testament prophet. And the rest of the Old Testament says that in order for anyone to have a relationship with God, there has to be atonement for sin. It's not enough just to try and live a good life. So cast your mind back. You remember that when God brought Israel out of Egypt, he brought them to Mount Sinai. And he said, look, I've rescued you from captivity and now I'm going to give you two things. I'm going to give you the law, the Ten Commandments, and I'm going to give you the tabernacle and the sacrifices. Now, why did God do that? Well, the Ten Commandments spelt out the way that God wanted his people to live. He said, I want you to live like this. Why did he give them the tabernacle? Because God knew they wouldn't do it. God knew that no one was going to love God with all their heart, soul, mind and strength and love their neighbour as themselves. So there had to be a way to atone for sin. So you see, you can't read verse 8 and say that because verse 8 doesn't mention atonement, we don't actually need it. Verses 6 and 7 are simply saying that you and I can't atone for our sin. The Old Testament says that before anyone can come before the exalted God, there's got to be a sacrifice for sin. And then the second point, uh, putting this in context, is that in the New Testament, we find that Jesus, this is really fascinating, Jesus picks up the ideas in verse 8 and he restates them as a summary of the whole of the law. So when Jesus is asked, which is the greatest commandment, he replies, well, the most important commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength and love your neighbour as yourself. So it all comes down to loving God, which Micah describes here as walking humbly with your God and loving your neighbour as yourself, which Micah describes as acting justly and loving mercy. 
But you see, when Jesus talks about the greatest commandment, he never says, try your best to do these things and that'll be fine. He doesn't do that. So, for example, when he he talks to the rich young man in Mark chapter 10, or, or when he talks to that lawyer in Luke chapter 10 before the parable of the Good Samaritan, he's talking to people who think they're okay. They think they're fine. And Jesus wants to show them they're not. He shows them that they need grace, they need mercy, they need forgiveness, just like everyone else. So what does Jesus do? He quotes these commandments about loving God perfectly and loving neighbour perfectly. And whenever Jesus quotes these things, he does so to show people that they are not fulfilling God's law. God does require those things, but if you think you've even come close to keeping them, you simply don't understand. Some of you will have uh, heard of the Methodists of the 18th century, uh, men like Wesley and Whitfield. The leaders of that movement were trying very hard indeed to live according to God's law. And so they devised a set of questions that they would ask themselves at the end of each day. Uh, I won't give you all of them because it's a long list and quite frankly they're rather overwhelming. But imagine thinking back over your day and asking yourself some of these questions. Have I not only prayed today but been fervent in prayer? Have I practiced God's presence at least every hour, speaking directly to him? Have I, before every deliberate act or conversation, considered how I might do it with God's glory in mind? Have I given thanks to God after every pleasure and every good thing I've experienced? Have I avoided proud thoughts and have I avoided comparing myself to others? Have I always admitted when I was wrong, swiftly and happily? Have I thought or spoken unkindly of anybody? Did I ever twist the truth in order to look good? Have my words today been honest, few, wise and apt, calm and warm? Have I harboured lots of anxious thoughts? Or have I cast them all on the Lord, completely trusting him? Well, I could go on, but I won't. But you see, it's really just the beginning of thinking about what it would mean to love God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength and love your neighbour as yourself. And that's what Mike is saying, you see. This is what the Lord requires of you. So, if we put our passage in Micah in the context of the Bible, we realise that our sin has to be atoned for. And we realise that, of course, God requires the standards laid down in verse 8, but there's no way that anybody can do them perfectly. Therefore, there's one more thing we've got to, under, got to do in order to understand the message of Micah in its context. And here, we've got to look again at Micah's question in the second half of verse 7. Have a look at it. Second half of verse 7. Shall I offer my firstborn 
for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul. Now, when that was being read, I guess some of you might have shuddered and thought, well, what a grotesque idea. Micah can't possibly mean it. Perhaps it's just a figure of speech. Well, it's not. Because, you see, Micah is drawing on something absolutely fundamental at the beginning of the Bible. And because he's writing under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, he's also anticipating something at the end of the Bible. In fact, I I dare say that this is actually the golden thread that shows you where Micah fits into the whole Bible story. So if we go back to the law given by God through Moses, we find there's one very, very strange requirement. Because God said that in every family, the life of the firstborn is forfeit because of the sin of the whole family. And therefore, a ransom had to be paid to redeem them so they didn't die. Now, you and I find this really hard to understand because we live in an individualistic culture. So the idea of the firstborn son, for example, receiving the inheritance sounds really unfair to us. But remember that this was in the days when a family's assets were in land, buildings and livestock. And in a subsistence economy, the only way that a family could sustain itself was if you didn't divide the estate between the children. So the firstborn son, as head of the family, inherited the estate and he had to provide for everyone else. And for those very, very practical reasons, the firstborn son represented the hope of the family. And when God said the life of the firstborn is forfeit and you've got to pay a ransom to redeem him, that was God's way of saying all of you actually deserve to die for your sin, but the firstborn son represents the whole family. And God said that a sacrifice could be made in his place and in that way the sin of the whole family would be atoned for. It was, if you like, a symbol of the fact that the wages of sin is death. Now, let's illustrate this. You see, this is why God came to Abraham and said, Take your son Isaac, your only son whom you love, and go up the mountain and offer him there as a sacrifice. Now, Whenever we read that, we we think that must have been agonising for Abraham. But notice that Abraham didn't say, well, why should I do that? What on earth are you talking about? Because Abraham knew that what God was doing was calling in the debt. The firstborn would die for the sins of the family. So while it was agonising for Abraham to receive this command from God... Abraham didn't protest. Instead, he obeyed, went up the mountain with Isaac, bound him on the altar, raised his knife to slay his son, and, of course, you know how the story goes. God says, stop. Don't slay the boy. Now I know that you fear God 
For you did not withhold from me your son, your only son, whom you love. So the story has a happy ending, but the question is, why did God decide not to take the payment for the sin of that family? And the New Testament gives us the answer. It tells us that the reason that God does not require your life or my life was because God himself walked up Calvary and offered his firstborn son. But of course, in that case, there was no voice from heaven saying stop. And Jesus Christ, God's firstborn son, died on the cross to atone for your sin and for my sin. And when we see in our mind's eye Jesus dying on that cross, we can say to God, now we know that you love us, for you did not withhold your son, your only son whom you love. So can we see that it's only when you connect Micah chapter 6 to the beginning of the Bible and God's law that the life of the firstborn is forfeit and can only be redeemed by the payment of a ransom and also to the end of the Bible where God offers up his own firstborn son so that we don't have to die. It's only when you do that that you can know how to have a relationship with the exalted God. So if we come back to Micah's great question, how can I come before the exalted God? The Bible context supplies the answer. Because we point to the sacrifice of Jesus and we pray, Father, accept me because of what Jesus Christ has done. So dear friends, verse 8 is not, underlined, not the way to get saved. It's not telling us how we can bridge the gap between ourselves and the exalted God. Rather, it's telling us how to live as those who've already been saved by grace. And verse 8 is saying, if you are already in a covenant relationship with the exalted God by grace alone, here's what the relationship looks like. First, act justly. Uh, The word justice uh, in the Bible, uh, mishpat in the Hebrew, is nearly always connected to four vulnerable classes of people. Widows, orphans, immigrants, and the poor. And I think it's stunning that of the three things that Micah says should be the marks of real believers in God, the first is that we are to be deeply committed to helping the most vulnerable people in the community. And you'll find the same connection in Zechariah chapter 7 verse 8 and following. Now of course There are so many vulnerable people in South Africa that we we tremble at the size of the task. We don't know where to start. But what about our church family? Surely each one of us can ask the Lord to show us how we can help others in need in our church family. That's the first thing, act justly. Second, 
God requires us to love mercy. Now the word mercy here is the Hebrew word that is normally translated as steadfast love. And in the majority of cases where you find it in the Bible, it normally refers to God's steadfast love for his people. It's saying he loves you unconditionally. He doesn't love you because of who you are or because of what he's getting out of the relationship. He loves you full stop. And here, Micah says that we are to love mercy. That means we are to love loving other people like that. That means we love other people whether we're getting anything out of it or not. We're committed to people even if we're upset with them, even if they're letting us down. We don't give up on them. We stay in relationships with people even if those relationships drain us. And thirdly, we are to walk humbly with God. What does it mean to walk? It's actually a frequent metaphor in the Bible. But think about it. When you walk with someone, you're in a relationship with them. You're talking together and you're both heading in the same direction to the same destination. And walking with God means three things and with this I close. First, it means you're exposed and totally accountable. You know, when you walk with someone, they can see everything you're doing. To be exposed and totally accountable means that in every part of your life, you are totally exposed to God. So you're not just letting God into a tiny part of your life over here and shutting him out from everything else. No, you bring him into every part of your life. Second, walking with God means that you are befriended and totally loved. Because walking in the Bible is a metaphor for intimacy. That means you've got to have a prayer life. You've got to have a two-way prayer life. You need to hear God speaking to you through his word and you need to be speaking to him, opening up your whole life to him. And thirdly and lastly, walking with God means that you're growing and gradually changing. In other words, you're, you're more loving than you were a couple of years ago. You're more peaceful. You've got more inner joy. You're growing. So friends, if you're a Christian, if you've been saved by grace through faith in the finished work of Christ on the cross, verse 8 is showing you how to live a good life, a life that is pleasing to Almighty God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for showing us so clearly how to live a good life. It means having a relationship with you, the exalted God, through the shed blood of Jesus. And then 
having our lives transformed so that we act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with you moment by moment, day by day. Help us to apply these words to our lives, starting this week and for all the days to come, until we see you face to face. And all these things we ask for Christ our Saviour's sake. Amen.